energy prices are are higher, food prices are higher. Uh, you know, the consumer feels that right away, and uh, when he feels that, he, he pulls back on on some of his other you know spending things. Hello and welcome to Planet Money. I'm David Kestenbaum. And I am Baltur Hirnsson, the Planet Money intern. Today is Friday, April 29th, and that was analyst Roy Blumberg you heard at the top from the Philadelphia Group. On this podcast, how a frozen rock in the middle of the ocean became one of the most prosperous places on Earth. David, that piece of frozen rock is my home. Iceland. Our final podcast on Iceland and its crazy economic history coming up. But first, our Planet Money indicator from Jacob Goldstein. Today's Planet Money indicator, 17%. The value of the dollar has fallen by 17% since last June. And yesterday, it actually hit its lowest point since back in the summer of 2008, before the financial crisis. So, so just to be clear what that means, $1 or $10 or $100 or whatever does not buy you as many euros or yen or British pounds as it did a year ago. And this is why we hear a lot of people talking about a weak dollar right now, usually in sort of worried tones. It, it came up a lot at Ben Bernanke's press conference this week. And it sounds like a bad thing, right? Weak doesn't sound good, right? It, it does mean that imports, anything we buy from a foreign country uh, is more expensive. It means those prices, prices for things like oil are going up in this country, which means inflation. And just it, it feels bad because the reason the dollar is weak is that people are saying, you know what, I don't need dollars so much anymore. I'd rather have euros or pounds or something else. It means they're more excited about things going on in the rest of the world than they were about whatever it was they had invested in the United States. That is all true. It's a very good explanation of why we should be worried about a weak dollar. Although there is a flip side, and, and it's one we've talked about before, which is a weak dollar is actually good for exports, right? Because in the same way that stuff made elsewhere is more expensive in the U.S. now, stuff that's made in the U.S. is cheaper in other countries. So that tends to drive up exports. So so ultimately, really, what you think about a weak dollar depends sort of on where your priorities are. If you're really worried about inflation, if you think that's the big concern right now, then yes, a weak dollar is something you should worry about. But if you look at inflation and say, well, you know, it is in sort of the normal historic range, and you think what we really need is economic growth, then a weak dollar is actually a good thing because exports are a great way to drive economic growth and a weak dollar is good for exports. Thank you very much. Thanks. Okay, so on to Iceland. So, Balder, one of the things that struck me when you took me to Iceland is that it looks like any other European or Scandinavian city. You got coffee shops, fancy cars, shopping malls, nice orderly streets, but it's as if you had that city and it was set on the moon. It does kind of look like the moon. And when NASA was looking for terrain that was similar to the moon, they came to Iceland and they, they practiced for some of the moon landings. I would point out, though, that we never settled the moon. Somehow people settled Iceland, which raises a question. You know, how is there so much money in Iceland today? How did this economy grow up here, which by any measure is not the best place to start a civilization, much less a, a thriving economy? So that is our question for today. How did that happen? Consider for a moment how unlikely it is. I mean, it's called Iceland for a reason. It is so far north that polar bears sometimes randomly end up here floating by on chunks of ice. In the winter, there are just a few hours of daylight. And this is my childhood. I remember waking up, going to school in total darkness. Then the sun pops up around noon, goes right back down, school is over, and you go back home in the dark. When we were there, the sun was up. It wasn't too cold. But these crazy things would happen. One day we saw this big, dark cloud on the horizon that had just sort of blown across the ocean and was about to hit Iceland. But, but do you think? Do you think it's just a cloud? 
No, it's crazy looking, whatever it is. <laughs> I think it's rain. <laughs> Look, here it comes. <laughs> Stings. Little pieces of ice flying through the air. <laughs> Why did your people stay here? You know, I ask my myself that question all the time. I mean, now we have heat, we have electricity, we have nice houses and cars to drive between them. But can you imagine being somewhere uh, riding on a horse in this weather, and you're uh, four hours from the next? Next uh, safe, safe place. You gotta be a little crazy to go to live a life like that. So today we are going to go on a thousand-year journey. You could call it a saga, looking at how Iceland went from frozen rock to thriving economy. And we're going to start at a place where we were driving to actually when that hailstorm hit. It's a place called Thingvellir. It was the hangout place back in the time of the Vikings. So, Baldur, you drove us 45 minutes over these old lava fields, which frankly isn't saying much because the whole island is made out of lava. And we get to this place that looks like it's taken from some scene in the Lord of the Rings. Yeah, and Tolkien was fascinated with Iceland. He studied the language. He, uh, he really liked the, the sagas and the Nordic mythology. And you take me down into this narrow canyon. It's not very wide. There are rock walls on either side of us. And it looks like a place where the world split open, which you tell me is basically what happened. We're walking uh, down uh, Almanagia, which is, a, which is a big crack in the earth. Iceland is right on the border of the American plate and uh, the European plate, so the, so the big tectonic plates, and they're moving apart. So as the, as the plates move apart, the, the earth moves apart, and it's created this big crack in the earth. And this is the place where the, the Vikings came to, uh, they gathered here to set the law and make sure that the law was followed. The Vikings. That is where our story begins. The Vikings were the first to settle on this rock in the middle of the ocean. We called up a historian to see what life was like, what the Viking economy was like back then. Can you do his name? Sigurður Gilvi Magnusson. And he wrote a book called Wasteland with Words. And when you think about Vikings, maybe you think about big guys with huge round shields throwing hammers or axes or whatever. The truth, he says, is a lot bleaker. And we know all this because the people of Iceland have been keeping a gigantic national diary for a thousand years. It is basically uh, uh, an account of everyone who settled down in the country. Your people are so well organized and documented. <laughs> well, that's true. I mean, and uh, these guys who who settled down, they started to write these epic stories, which we call the, Iceland, the Icelandic sagas. It's a family saga. Now, one of the early settlement books is called Íslandingabók, which means the Book of Icelanders. And the old version was written on animal skin, but now today we have a, have a new version. It's also called Íslandingabók, but this time it's online. It's on, on the Internet. And while we were talking to Sigurdur, you went online and you looked up the name of one of your ancestors who would have been around at the time. How far do you want to go back? How far back can you go? Uh, I'm back to... 1075, Þorlákur Yðgi Ormsson. <laughs> so this is my great, 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 with 23 greats, grandfather of mine. And this is the place we're going to start. So he's one of the early generations that settles Iceland. And we asked Sigurdur what life was like for old Thorlaugur. Just to heat up the house was a huge problem in Iceland. You can just imagine in a cold weather like it gets here in the northern part of Iceland how it is to be, uh, live in a turf houses. 
Describe the houses.、Uh, the houses were、uh, made of turf and stone and dirt, and the walls were thick, without any insulation. So everyone ended up in the same room, which is called balstola or、uh, kind of a living room where every, where people worked and slept, and、uh, everyone went on doing their business the whole year around, and.、Uh, Downstairs, they even had the livestock, so the heat from the livestock would actually、uh, come up through the、uh, through the floor and heat up the the living quarters of the people. But you can just imagine the smell in these、uh, houses.、And、keep in mind, it is dark in the winter, and the winters are long. Sometimes summer never comes; it just stays cold. And the only thing you have are these dirt houses. You've got sheep or cows. They graze on whatever little grasses they can find. You drink the milk, or if you get really hungry, you kill one of them and eat it. Don't you need something、um, green in your diet? Don't you need like、uh, you know vitamin C from an orange somewhere or something? No, I mean the, I'm,、uh, even the potato wasn't really introduced to the Icelandic diet until very very late. I was very surprised when I found out that in many counties in the country, it it really didn't. Become part of the diet until、uh, late nineteenth, early twentieth century. What did they grow? Did turnips or something? Or、uh, what did they grow? Well, they didn't really grow anything. There were fish, but you had to have a way to keep the fish. Of course, you have to preserve the food for the winter. And the farmers had a couple of ways to make food last through the long winters. They could salt or smoke the meat, and then there was this other technique: you could ferment it. So you had、uh, rotten shark. Or、uh, it went through the stages of of of, of rotten. It smells really really bad, but it, you know it's a delicate. It's considered a delicacy to get today. I'm not sure whether Baldo you eat it, but I eat it for sure. I do taste it on a on occasions, but、uh, I don't really consider it food. And the smell is horrible. If you want to ruin a party, just open up a jar of rotten shark, and people are gonna run. So this was your great 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 grandfather Thorlaker's life—a diet of dairy products, rotten shark, and that was if he was lucky. There were famines, and remember, you're living on a volcanic island. In 1783, there is an eruption that kills nearly a quarter of the population. The population drops to 38,368. Yes, they documented that exactly. 75% of the farm animals die. Was there ever a time when when people were about to give up? Oh yeah, there there was a time actually. When the Danish king thought about moving the country down to Denmark, the whole country, evacuating the island. Yeah, and not only is there not much to eat, there's not much to do. Remember, you got to stay inside a lot of the time because of the weather and because it's dark out a lot of the time. So for these hundreds of years, aside from surviving, one of the major things people spend their time doing, weirdly, is a kind of education. These guys were more interested in books. I mean, they were reading constantly, reading. Then, you know, part of it, you had a very long, cold winter where the people sat in the same living room, told stories from of、uh, old heroes,、uh, recited poetry, and、uh, really dealing with kind of abstract、uh, concepts. It's a strange society in the sense that you have this.、Uh, It's a high quality of intellectual activity, but at the same time, dirt poor society. And this is what life was like for a long, 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 long time. Yeah, for my relative Thorlaugur Ormsson and his son Thorleifur and his son Thorleikur and his son 
ketill, and so on and so on. It was almost like time had stopped on the island. Gilve Magnusson is an economist at the University of Iceland. It stayed more or less this way from, from the 9th century to the 19th century. We for a thousand years? For a thousand years, not very much happened uh, economically. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, uh, the 18th century is 1800s. I mean, the rest yeah. of the world is charging on. Yeah, that, that we, we sort of missed out on, on uh, the Industrial Revolution. For Iceland up until this point, geography was destiny. If you wanted an orange, sorry, no oranges. You want wood, well, we don't have any trees to speak of. You want coffee in the morning with your fermented shark, forget it. We don't have coffee on the shelves. But then, in the 1800s, Iceland discovered there was a way to get these things. Discovered it had something that the rest of the world wanted that it could use to trade. Turns out we did have a natural resource. It was not in the ground. It was not even on the island, but it was nearby. It was fish, fish in the ocean. And in the 19th century, Icelanders started exporting fish to Europe en masse. So Catholics, they need to eat fish on Fridays. Icelanders had the cod that the Catholics needed. The world wants cod, and Iceland has cod. And so because of cod and these other fish, in the span of just one generation, people go from sleeping in earthen houses to joining the modern world. All sorts of things start appearing on the island, things that people had never seen before. Here's historian Sigurdur Gilve Magnusson. There is a diary uh, from a, a working-class woman in Reykjavik, uh, the year 1918, I think it is, where she looks out of her kitchen window and she sees an airplane in the, in the air. And it's an it's a incredible description of how, I mean, she's for the first time in her life looking at an airplane. And she just can't believe what she is looking at. It really was this, um, it was the, the discovery of this natural resource and finally of something to sell to the world and then life changes there. Yeah. This is my grandfather's story. This is just your grandfather, one grand. <laughs> yeah, one grand. So my, my grandfather was born on a farm, and he faced a life of hard labor, hard farming labor like all of his ancestors. But because of fishing, he was able to move to a fishing village and live a much more modern life. Today, he, he owns a computer, he owns a cell phone. And fishing by itself was a huge step forward. Economists talk about the benefit of trade. Iceland is an example of what they're talking about. You know, the people of Iceland, they like fish, but they got more fish than they need. Other people want fish. They can trade, and it's transformative. And it didn't stop with fish, so the benefits now start to build. So the fish brings in money, and this helps us develop other natural resources. Icelanders even find a way to benefit from one of the things that made the island so inhospitable, a thing that even today can land this tiny island on the international news. Right now, the big story everyone is talking about is Iceland. This is Stephen Colbert. And the eruption of their volcano, Eyjafjallajökull, which evidently is Icelandic for, you'll be sleeping in the airport. A vast cloud of ash spewing from a volcano in Iceland, reaching over 30,000 feet. Probably the only good thing about living around volcanoes is that you can at least use the heat as a source of energy. Remember that crack in the earth at the beginning? Iceland straddles two tectonic plates, and it's right on top of a, a hot spot where magma is coming up from maybe the outer core of the Earth. And we use this today to heat our houses. And David, you might remember the shower at my parents' place in Iceland. It sort of smelled like sulfur. That's due to the geothermal. Yeah, I thought that was pretty great, actually. Another nice thing about volcanic islands is that you've got mountains. And Iceland, as you heard at the beginning, has a lot of rain. So mountains plus rain, you've got hydropower. 
And the hydropower makes electricity really cheap in Iceland, so cheap that you don't really think about using electricity so much. So I remember when I left the island for the first time and lived abroad, I didn't think about turning lights off, and my roommates were furious at me because, I mean, I was driving up the electric bill. They used to uh, walk behind me and make sure that I, I turned all the lights off. So, Baldur, the problem, of course, is that you can't easily export electricity. It's hard to build a power line from Iceland to New York City or something. But it turns out there is a secret way you can, in essence, export electricity. Aluminum. In 1969, somebody built an aluminum plant in Iceland. And, in fact, you can see this aluminum plant when you drive into Reykjavik from the airport. And when you hear aluminum, really think electricity, because extracting aluminum from ore requires an incredible amount of electricity. So companies are now dragging their aluminum ore to Iceland, smelting it there with the electricity, and then shipping it on. Some countries have cheap labor. Iceland has cheap electricity. So you've got fishing, you've got aluminum smelting, and then Iceland finds another way to capitalize on something that, for thousands of years, had just been a coping mechanism, all that book learning. It turns out you Icelanders were pretty well suited for a knowledge-based economy. Yeah, that's how we got into international banking. And at the time, at least, the economy looked incredible. You had 1% unemployment, people living in peace and harmony. This frozen rock had, in a very short period of time, evolved to become sort of the model of perfection. It was where we would like all economies to be. Until all our banks collapsed. Okay, so you hit a little bump with the banks, which you heard another podcast about. But I would say there is no way you're going back to your great, 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 great grandfather's turf hut. Iceland now, because of trade, you have the same high quality of life there as in other advanced economies. And you're basically in the situation most advanced economies are in. You've done a lot of what you can do with your natural resources. And now to continue to prosper, you have to make up something new. You have to invent something out of nothing. You have to create some idea, some service the rest of the world is willing to pay for. It is, after all, a country of thinkers. Just as in the old days of the sagas, books still play a big role in Icelandic society today. And we publish about five times as many books per capita than the U.S. does. <laughs> we asked the historian Sigurd Gilfi Magnusson about that. In uh, 2007, uh, I published three books that year. My wife, two books, and our five-year-old son, one book. <laughs> 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 that was a good harvest that year. What was the book he wrote? He wrote a book about our trip to Disney World. Baldur, it does seem unlikely that Iceland will pull itself out of its economic difficulties by being a nation of novelists or something. I think it really is up to you, you and the next generation. What are you going to do with your life? What is going to be written in the Book of Settlement online next to the name of Baldur Hedinson? Well, today, it doesn't say anything. It's basically just my name and that I was born in Reykjavik in 1980. All right, let us know what you think Baldur should do. You can send us an email. We're planetmoney at npr.org. Check out our blog, npr.org slash money, where you can watch a video of how to make your own fermented shark. I'm David Kastenbaum. And I'm Baldur Jensen. Thank you for listening.